Welcome to the GovComs podcast, bringing you the latest insights and innovations from experts and thought leaders around the globe in government communication. Now, here is your host, David Pembroke. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to GovComs, the podcast that examines the practice of content communication in government and the public sector. My name's David Pembroke, and thank you for joining us today. Today, our guest is Farouk Muller, who is a communications professional with more than 15 years' experience working in a range of busy and demanding roles across media relations and communications in both the public and voluntary sectors. He first trained as a journalist, then worked in the UK government, where he's been a media advisor to uh, several UK prime ministers and senior ministers. He's led teams and delivered high-profile communications campaigns for key government domestic policies, including the major housing building program, a review of the BBC, and the controversial reforms to teachers' pay and pensions. He's also dealt with international issues such as the UK's military involvement in Afghanistan and was a part of the UK government's Olympics communications team for the highly successful Olympic Games in London in 2012. He also led the communications crisis response for the UK government following the Grenfell Tower tragedy, where Farouk led a team of 40-plus professionals to deliver effective communication. He has recently relocated to Sydney, Australia, where he brings this wealth of talent and experience to transport for New South Wales and helping them at the moment with the way they manage the challenges of the current coronavirus pandemic. He joins me on the line. Farouk, thank you very much for joining me on GovComs. Uh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So that's a, a great career. You've obviously had wonderful experience, but perhaps maybe if we go back to the beginning, um, did you always think government communications was for me or it was that journalism path first that, that really got you interested in people and, and storytelling and, and, and effective communication? Um, so I think it is the kind of where I kind of started out. And I think from a young age, I, I kind of I was the kid that was more happy with a kind of pen and paper, and I'd kind of be writing stories, both kind of creatively, but then what was going on in my local community from kind of doing things like the local community newsletter and all that kind of things. So I kind of always had that passion for journalism and storytelling, um, and then kind of, as I said, I kind of trained as a journalist and went to university and read journalism, um, and then kind of the focus was to go into journalism, but then. My kind of my eye was kind of caught with a job in uh, a charity. Uh, first of all, I kind of started working with a small charity, uh, and it was kind of the people. The people stuff is really important to me, and telling the story of how uh, people's lives are impacted by anything. Um, and so I was working for a small cancer charity and helping them with their kind of communications and telling their story to help with the fundraising, but then also get the message out there in terms of how cancer was having this particular cancer was having an effect on people's lives. Um, and from there, I kind of wanted to move on into government because I'd missed the kind of politics with a small p. Um, and so then I kind of joined government uh, to kind of to tell that story and to tell how government is helping people and changing lives. Uh, and so I joined uh, the Department of Environment back in the UK. Um, and I kind of, as I came in, I'd kind of 
was give, thrown into the situation because back in the UK we had the uh, floods of 2007 where thousands of homes were flooded over a kind of sustained period of a couple of months and so kind of really thrown into crisis comms there and that's where I kind of really developed my skill um, and it was really interesting because it was kind of again telling the story of how people's lives have been impacted by this natural disaster and how the organisation, how government etc was helping um, to kind of deal with the situation both immediately and into the future and I think that's the kind of key thing for me as a communicator is that with everything that I work on is how is it impacting on that person in the street and how is it changing their lives for the better. Mm. So interesting that that crisis communications and often in government communications, it is an, you know, a big part of that role because of the reactive nature and the role Mm. that government plays. And clearly you've been involved in a number of uh, big crisis response. You mentioned the floods of 2007, but uh, clearly, Grenfell Tower was a, another major mm-hmm. crisis, um, and certainly around you know the the review and reforms of the BBC, and also the you know the teachers' pay and pensions. So, just in terms of of crisis comms and being ready for that, and for for the audience, because essentially what this podcast is about is trying to give people some insight and some ideas about how they might deal and, and learn from other people's experience. So so what is the, the shorthand guide to Farouk's um, management, effective management of crises? What, what do you have to get right? Uh, I mean, a bit of it is that British thing of kind of keep calm and carry on. And I think that's really important in a crisis is that the kind of the, the natural tendency and the natural human behaviour is kind of like, oh my God, we need to do something, we need to do something. Um, and that kind of pa- that panic. And so the first thing is actually just stop, deep breath. Um, what you will hopefully have done and you know organize and working in government departments and organizations that i've helped uh, look at that kind of crisis comms is making sure that they're planning for a crisis um and that they don't leave it till a crisis kind of happens so they're prepared and they've got all the kind of material the kind of they know what their kind of plan would be if a crisis of some sort would hit their organization uh, but then when you're thrown into that crisis it's a just kind of stop for a second and take that kind of critical time just to stop and make an assessment of what needs to happen in a calm and kind of rational way. Um, and then I de- then start working to identify what needs to happen. So it's starting off then firstly identifying in terms of your comms team. Um, so using the example of Grenfell Tower Fire, uh, you know, London, the city, the UK had dealt with crises of a different, of all types of nature. No one kind of had prepared for a crisis of this nature. Um, and so very quickly, uh, kind of teams etc were stood up and so my role was to kind of come in and set up the kind of comms function and um, working with other colleagues um, and so identifying immediately what the comms team are what do you need so making sure that you've got a good kind of media relations team both in terms of dealing with the reactive calls that are coming in from media but then also a, a separate team that is able to focus on kind of the proactive positive stories that we want to push out uh, looking at stakeholders so doing that kind of in quick an easy stakeholder mapping of who your key stakeholders are, who are your influencers, who do you need to keep on board, um, and kind of doing that. Um, but then obviously the media will come knocking on the door pretty much straight away, and so making sure that you work through kind of holding statements, uh, briefing documents, etc. And the kind of key thing around the media is having that speed, uh, but yes, so getting out there quickly and on the front foot, um, but then making sure that you've got um, tangible action that you can demonstrate um, and then also, if if it, the situation requires it, is the apology, saying sorry. So, uh, and you know, often where organisations have kind of gone wrong is they they don't acknowledge, they don't say sorry, and because something has gone wrong, um, 
and that is really key and important. Um, and then once you've kind of got through that first kind of 24 hours is then kind of taking that breath again to anticipate where is this going to go next? What are the potential scenarios? So with the Grenfell Tower fire, for example, it was looking at, okay, we've, you know, the aftermath with the first 24, 48 hours kind of was dealing with uh, you know, the situation and, uh, you know, working with all the various agencies uh, to establish the information very quickly. But then the next stage was, okay, we've got, how many hundreds of people displaced, families displaced that need a new home, et cetera, and working through the scenario plan for that and supporting the wider effort with the communications to go with that. Um, one of the key things that I think um, in a crisis is always kind of left sometimes behind that is really important um, is evaluation. Um, and I know you, your, your previous guest, um, Stacey Barr, talked about evaluation, uh, echoing everything that she kind of said is that evaluation has to be all the way through. It has to be, you have to think about it from the beginning and be constantly doing it and looking at metrics, looking at data coming in to make sure that the communications that you're doing is having the right effect, reaching the right people. Uh, and more importantly, is actually make sure that you learn from it. Because um, I've seen all too often where organisations do the, the good work of the evaluation. They learn all this fantastic stuff, but then it sits in a cupboard or in a PowerPoint presentation locked away and never mm. actually makes any meaningful difference. And I think that's really important. And so that's one of the things with the Grenfell Tower fire that we did, for example, was that uh, we were pushing out all this messaging to the communities that were affected, saying what support, help, et cetera, was available to them. But we very quickly learned, actually, they didn't trust us because the trust in government had gone. Um, and so very quickly, what we were able to do is then actually switch, say, OK, right, who are they trusting? Who are they listening to? And using those organisations to convey that public information messaging that we needed to get to them. So we used stakeholder parties like uh, the Red Cross who'd come in and support it to help mm. to kind of give them the messaging to say, right, can you tell them this important messaging that needs to go on? Uh, and that was that came out of evaluation. And that was because we very early on embedded uh, a couple of people in kind of leading the evaluation across all the communications channels and as part of our routine every day, we were kind of challenging ourselves to say, right, what does the evaluation show us? What are we learning from it? How can we make this better? Mm. Um, and I think that is really important. Um, and also in that kind of crisis comp situation, especially with like things like where I've worked on Gwenfell, uh, but then also flooding, is make sure that you look after your people uh, in your kind of immediate team, because you will in with Grenfell and with flooding, we're working kind of shift patterns, et cetera, and making sure that those are adequately kind of set up and resource so that you've got enough cover, but also that your people are getting rest and you yourself are getting rest in that downtime and looking after each other. So this kind of mental health and well-being is really important as well, because at the end of the day, these are the, you know, your team are the people that are helping you deliver the communications. And if they're not on their air game, then that isn't going to help anyone. Hmm. Well, that is a very comprehensive answer, and there's almost a yep. podcast in that, in that answer. Yeah. I'm just going to sort of unpick some of these things and sure. go back. So just to the notion of that, um, you know, you talk about the crisis plan that perhaps is there or might not be there, but there's every chance that it's in the same cupboard as the evaluation from previous um, uh, projects that have been on. So mm -hmm. how is your experience that people do plan for a crisis or that it's just not high enough up on the, the 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 risk register that they sort of keep it current and prominent and indeed obviously your advice would be if you don't have a current up-to-date crisis plan as part of your risk mitigation strategy well get one yeah uh, and i think i think organizations have uh, improved over time so kind of government has you know uk government etc when i first joined uh 
you know, it, it, they were kind of, it was there and it was kind of very rarely looked at and, until something happened. Whereas it's kind of come on now whereby it's part of the organization's kind of culture. It's built into kind of business continuity plans and when they're tested, testing the climate crisis communications plans. Uh, there's kind of, in the UK, there are major uh, cross-agency and cross-government departments and organisations kind of regular testing of certain kind of crises that can happen. So flooding, for example, from the summer 2007 flooding, there was a, a kind of independent report and uh, inquiry that was led into the, how governments and agencies handle that. And from that, there were some very clear learnings for communications, which then triggered that further focus on actually testing it so now on a regular basis in the uk the crisis comes around a flooding event is regularly tested yeah. and put through its paces and kind of it's put through spaces to kind of reflect the changing situation in terms of perhaps how the country has changed but then also in terms of how media has changed so back in 2007 social media etc was a very it was there and but it wasn't a major element whereas now the kind of crisis comes plan for for flooding for example has kind of shifted on to make sure that it reflects the way that people consume news and get their information mm. and so it's really important that it's done uh, kind of corporate organizations i think have come somewhere as well because they they've been high profile uh kind of corporate in the corporate world kind of crises there kind of made organizations and people sit up in the boardroom and think actually what is our kind of plan but i think that it is important that as well as having that plan and you know the plan won't cover every single crisis but it will give you a good starter for 10 yeah. uh, when that does come but then is that testing it and almost kind of including as part of kind of those business continuity plans and exercises you know we do a fire we do a fire drill yeah and we test the fire alarm every so often so we need yeah. to be doing the same with with our comms on a regular basis to make sure that actually what we put down on paper and may have kind of gone through 12 months ago still stands today because you know people will have moved on organizations and structures may have changed uh, it etc will have changed and the kind of the communication landscape itself will have changed and how you reach your audiences and how your audiences get their information will undoubtedly have changed mm. so in terms of um the observation you made about the media and this notion of keeping calm and taking a breath uh, how do you resist the power of the media when you do get one of those absolute full court press where you get everyone calling and they want something and they don't care. They just want something now and it's going to be the end of the world. If it doesn't, you know, if you don't give it to them, then I need it now that that real surge that can come. Um, what's your best advice for people when they are getting, monstered um and it's not mm -hmm. just from the media but then they're getting monstered from other people like ministers officers who are mm -hmm. also getting monstered from the media yeah um i think is as soon as a kind of crisis it is establishing the facts as soon as possible and making sure that you stick to the facts um because the tendency is then that sometimes you can go on what is hearsay but what you, what's been reported but hasn't been verified and then that can cause problems down the line so um, a kind of example is that with the uh, grandfather Tava, there kind of there was a desire and a hunger from the media to know how many people had been affected i.e had lost their lives um, and in the first 24 hours or so that information just was not available and there was kind of various numbers etc floating around but until we had established a verified figure we weren't giving that figure because it would Come, you know, there's a risk that it can then come back to haunt you. Say, well, actually, you said, the, you know, this many people, and actually now you're telling us this, which one's true. Um, so, 
but it is, it is important, like I said very early on, to be able, be able to say something. Um, and so that's the establishing what the facts are that are concrete and pu- promoting the, and pushing out those facts, whether that's in a media statement, um, it will depend on the nature of the crises, et cetera, whether that's just a media statement that you push out to journalists uh, by email, uh, stick on a website, Twitter, all that kind of stuff, or if it if there is a spokesperson or a person that is uh, can be the face of the communications response, getting them to you know do a media conference, press conference, um, and kind of really put that out that way. That obviously then has an impact in terms of if you get a, the world's media gathered there, they'll have a million and one questions that you then cannot answer. Mm. So being clear with them, you know, it's worked in instances. So for example, uh, one of the uh, Examples I um, refer to when I talk about Questcoms is um, so theme park Alton Towers in the UK um, had a ride that malfunctioned that basically several people were injured, um, some had kind of life-changing injuries, um, and within the first few hours of that happening, uh, the, the I think it was the CEO of Alton Towers was out there and he, he faced the media and, and gave a short, sharp statement to give the facts. Uh, in that case, he you know he he said you know he said that something has gone very wrong, which he you know, it was empathetic for. So in those situations, it makes sure that if people have been impacted, you have that empathy uh, because that is important. Um, and then he just gave that short, sharp statement, which dealt with it. The media had 101 questions to follow afterwards, but the kind of terms of how it was set up was that at this stage, there's a short statement and that's all we'll give and then we'll give further updates. And then just following through with that is that media will get frustrated. You know, media understand, and yes, they got, you know, they want to get the story and report the news, but equally they can understand that you might not have all the information immediately. Um, so by giving that short holding statement that establishes the facts that you know, and then having that agreement with journalists that we will go back to you and update you on a regular basis of information as it emerges, um, is really important and keeping to that. So in some instances where, um, that kind of promise has been made, but then that information hasn't been forthcoming, then media journalists understandably get critical. And mm. we learned that very early on, for example, in the when I worked on the summer floods in 2007, was that we made the mistake, mistake of promising regular updates, but because the process, uh, for want of a better word, hadn't been set up to get that information to us, we weren't able to deliver that information, which then led to very critical media reactions saying, well, you know, you said you can give us regular updates in terms of how many homes have been affected, where flood defences were up, and all that kind of information, and we just weren't able to provide that information. That then led, understandably, to critical media coverage. Whereas fast forward to Grenfell, we had kind of set up a regular kind of information sharing protocol with the journalists, um, but also making sure that they understood the process, because we obviously, in that situation, we were you know, dealing with life or death matters and people who had lost uh, loved ones and so our responsibility first and foremost was actually informing those that had been directly affected first before the media because we didn't want mm. the media to be reporting stuff and then loved ones reading it on the Guardian website or uh, in, on Twitter from a journalist we wanted to tell them first so we'd established that kind of protocol uh, and media were understanding of that largely um, and so I think that really helps yeah one of the one of the other things that you mentioned earlier, which I think is uh, really fascinating, actually, from a perhaps a you know a functional maturity uh, point of view there in the UK, because I, I'm pretty well, I, I know it doesn't really happen here in Australia, but that notion of deploying um, 
evaluation uh, expertise and attracting it very quickly into an organ into a uh, response so as that you are you know testing learning understanding as you go and being able to provide that data which helps you to get the insights to make the different decisions can you just describe for me just how that in fact takes place and is it just a matter of course that we know as much as we've got to have someone who's you know taking the video content or the photography or the graphic design or the writing or the social media distribution that at the same point, we absolutely consider that a, you know measurement and evaluation is is fundamental from from the uh, from the kickoff. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, my former boss, who you know, Alex Aiken, who's the director of government communications in the UK, uh, and when he came into his current role, he it was the kind of one of the key things that he kind of set out from the outset is that you know you're pumping out all this stuff, but how do you know is actually how are you intelligently looking at making sure that it's reaching the audience and having behaviour change that you want or the required effect. Um, and so there was a kind of really strong drive in the UK, um, in UK government comms around evaluation. And so I think that's where it's kind of come from um, to where, you know, in a crisis communication situation, I I always push for and always make sure that we have that evaluation from the outset. Um, and very quickly establishing some basic kind of evaluation measures and then building on them as the kind of situation goes on uh, and from a kind of basic point of view it's just making sure that you're gathering all that you know you're pushing out stuff on social media so making sure that you've got you know at a basic level you know Hootsuite set up and you've got your social media analytics coming through uh, from your various channels and looking at that data and getting a bit of sentiment um, from that as well the media reporting you know organizations especially in the UK government and here already have kind of media monitoring for their kind of press set up which gives you flavor of stuff taking all that information and bringing that all together and the way that it works really well in the UK um, something that I helped design there is just a short sharp media evaluation dashboard it's just you know two or three slides which basically capture the key uh, data that you need to know in there um, and things that you know what so for example with Grenfell you know, we were monitoring social media reaction and it was kind of there was almost too much there um, and so using various tools and softwares that are out there to kind of distill that down to see what are the hot topics people are talking about focusing on and from that then taking and shaping the communications so at the time we were very much focused on for example on one person obviously say you know around rehousing and around um people's belongings and not, them not having any belongings obviously they've lost them more sadly in the fire uh, but then from social media conversations together with kind of feedback that we were getting uh, from that community engagement team, they were other concerns that were being raised that we weren't really communicating on. So we were then able to take that on board and shift and change our communications approach to make sure we were addressing that. Um, similarly, kind of, you know, here, whilst I've been here at um, Transport for New South Wales, we're using that kind of approach here in terms of uh, with our, our staff, our employees, um, and listening to their kind of feedback. So taking things like information from the call centre, for example, of the topics that are coming in and what they're asking questions about to making sure that we've got that information and pushing that content to them. It's really important to kind of do that. And you can, you know, it's not, sometimes you can get lost in evaluation and lost in metrics and make it too heavy, but I think keeping it simple um, and making sure, like I said, that you learn from it and take actionable stuff from it is really important mm. um, because that helps to the overall uh, kind of su success and it can it 
it does determine whether you come out of the crisis successfully or not. Now, you've not been in Australia very long. You, you happily got in before the borders were closed um, yeah. with the, uh, the current pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's your assessment, having had such a uh, long and distinguished career inside the government communication service in the UK and arriving at Transport for New South Wales, a very um, big um, department inside the New South Wales government in Australia, which is a state government uh, and a, a very big organisation with, with lots of responsibility. What's been your uh, impressions of, of the differences and the similarities of the two um, environments? Yeah, no, I mean, that's a good question. It's, uh, I'd kind of spoken to those people, I spoke to yourself, I've spoken to other people that I know out here, former colleagues in the UK that moved back to Australia, uh, to kind of get an impression and I'm, it's 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 positive in the sense that you know there's very many similarities in terms of how you approach communications and how communications has increasingly uh, gotten that uh, that phrase which we use a lot in the UK the seat at the table uh, and I know you're talking about it before which is you know often communications is often seen as the thing that you know the, you know, the bit of the team that makes things pretty and decisions yeah. are made everywhere and then it comes to the end and say okay can I have a press release on that or can you do a report on that for me um in the UK uh, again under Alex's the uh, kind of leadership and uh, others it's kind of that's we communications now has that seat at the table and to, to the extent where in roles I've been fortunate uh, having worked in um with several prime ministers and senior ministers whereby that kind of the the second or third person into the room is me as the communications professional and they you know as part of policies being developed as part of issues being handled the kind of communications advice is sought from the outset um, and that's very much kind of mirrored here um, and talking to kind of colleagues here at transport and elsewhere it's kind of i think been a few years to the right how that's happened here and it's it's happened in the uk first almost and it's kind of catching on here and progressing here so that's really good to see i think in terms of having looked at other kind of government departments and organizations i think the the thing where i'd like to see develop more is around that kind of uh, communicate the profession the development of a communications professional so back in the day you know when i especially when i joined as a kind of lowly media officer into uk government i was a media officer and i just did media relations and nothing else but the world of communications has changed um in terms of how people consume news, media, etc., but then also in terms of how the workforce has to change. And you now have to be uh, a multi-skilled communications professional. So throughout my career, I've d- diversified, you know, built my kind of stakeholder engagement, comms experience, my internal comms, digital, uh, and so on. Um, and that has kind of been reflected in terms of the fact that teams have changed. And so in the UK government, you know, largely gone is what used to be the, the press office and the media relations team to now a team that kind of, yes, they're primarily focused on doing the media relations, but when they're putting together communications plans, when they're working on projects, they're also thinking about, right, okay, we need to do this and this for digital, and I need to bring in the digital expertise for this, and I need this for internal, and I need this for stakeholder comms, and this for community relations. Um, so a bit more joined up at the kind of comms teams uh, and being diverse and being able to do a, a range of the kind of communication skills, um, I think is probably an area where I'm, early on, I think I think is a, an area where development might just be needed a bit more. Mm. I think it's kind of started to happen and organising, so you know, here at Transport, it's happening. 
Um, but I think it's kind of, again, a, a, another kind of push or so to kind of focus on bringing that really to the fore uh, because that's how we get that seat at the table, being able to give that advice on the whole communications package rather than saying, oh, I can only talk to you about media. You'll have to go and talk to Bob about yeah. internal comms. Uh, if you're able to be a rounded communications professional, be able to give that advice to say, yep, so like media, this is my bread and butter. This is what we'll do. Internal comms, we need to think about this, this and this. I can take it away and I can talk to the experts. But this is my initial kind of assessment of where mm. what we need to do makes you valuable, gives you that seat at that table. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that's a that, that's a movement that is is happening. And I think hopefully... Um, you know, the, the degree of cooperation and collaboration that we've seen in the Australian um, government um, system, uh, if I could call it that, you know, that collaboration and cooperation between states, territories, local governments, uh, maybe there's going to be the opportunity to sort of line it up a little bit more and to, to continue to go down that path of, of a profession and, and development. I think there's lots that we can learn from our, our dear friends in the UK. Farouk, um, before I let you go, I'm interested um, just in your observations of, you know, the, how, you know, the communication um, has taken place across and around the world from the various governments around the um, COVID-19 pandemic. What's been your uh, assessment from from afar, and indeed, obviously, you're involved in Transport for New South Wales mm. response. So uh, I'm sure you have some uh, interesting observations to make about um, contrasting styles, perhaps, you know, two and a half hour media conferences in some parts of the world, yeah. um, all the way through to sort of sharing of expertise and, you know, and all the way through the system. So I'd be interested in, in your views. Yes, I mean, starting... Back at my former home in the UK, I think, you know, the the response, et cetera, there has kind of been evidence kind of led. Uh, and so one of the things that the UK is kind of good at is looking at evidence and looking at the latest kind of emerging trends of how to communicate to people. So the kind of really important message that every country has kind of been grappling with and here at Transport, we kind of been grappling with is how we kind of communicate to the public and encourage them to, you know, stay at home, uh, self-isolate, you know, no uh, non-essential travel, all those kind of hard messages uh, and the social distancing messages, how we kind of communicate that to uh, the public and actually get that buy-in from them. So in the UK, um, it's been kind of science kind of led where they've been using um, the behaviour insight team that was set up in the UK cabinet office, um, which I think is now spun up into a, a, a kind of a public-private partnership where they were looking at kind of behavior and the nudge theory type stuff. Yeah. And so that's why, for example, some of if you've seen any of the UK kind of content material, it's kind of been very brightly colored and some often weird kind of colors, but research, et cetera, shows that. And I think mm. that's been really interesting to see from, from them. Yeah, like I, 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 the, the, the interesting graphical representation across yeah. the front of the, um, of, of the lecterns, which looks yeah. like uh, tape looks like emergency yeah. tape you know it's designed mm -hmm. in such a way that here is an emergency message that we're giving you and it's that visual cue um yeah. that you're taking i noticed that um uh the other the, the other day which i thought was yeah. was neat and again as you say that's that's not just oh here oh hang on here's a good idea it's actually no no we've got the data we've got the evidence yeah. we know that that's that will uh 
transmit in this particular environment. So let's make that work and let's yeah. keep it simple, keep it short, keep it sharp. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, that's been interesting. And I think, and I think the countries where that I've kind of been a bit more kind of around, I know you touched on, is that you know the two and a half press, two and a half hour press conferences that you just go round and round, and it's just kind of what you kind of question what is the purpose of that and what is the impact that's having. Um, and it's just kind of like, you know, just keep it short, simple, get the key stuff that you want out there um, and make sure that it's evidence-based evidence kind of communication. So again, taking it here <laughs> in, in Australia. Good luck just, with uh, that. I think there might be a job for you in Washington, Farouk. Yeah, well, I kind of, I wanted to avoid talking about that. Uh, the US and the US response, but um, I'm sure you're good, but I'm not sure you're that good. Yeah, I'm not that good. No, uh, but I think, but I think that is the thing, is it? It's like, it, well, it's the classic thing of as a as a kind of media professional, etc. And like having been a journalist, I see, you know, as a journalist, it's great because you know, you, you with a two and a half hour press conference, you're definitely going to get some story out there, especially if you keep asking questions. You give you give someone, uh, you know, enough rope to hang themselves, type thing, and come up with stuff. Whereas my, you know, my advice as a media professional on the other side is like, you need to make your statements, answer a couple of questions, and get out of there. Um, whereas the US obviously take a slightly different approach there. Um, but then again, you know, here flip side, evidence-based communication. So using the evidence that we know of how people react. So one of the things I was reading, um, I can't remember which country it is. Um, I think it was an Asian country, whereby um, it's, it's slightly weird in terms of it kind of should challenge stereotypes but it doesn't but they their research showed that um a male voice people are more likely to listen to a male voice and take instruction from a male voice over a female voice okay um and so when they were doing their kind of public transport announcements or public yep. shopping centers they were using the, the male voice to give the kind of strong hard messages but then using the female voices for the more kind of encouragement voices for kind of encouragement um, announcements and people were more positively reacting to that so the kind of it's and it comes back to that point, uh, and it's kind of an uh, Alex Aitken, like who I mentioned earlier, who's the director of communications in the UK. His kind of thing, which is evidence-based communication, and yeah. that's what it always comes back to. And you know that evidence can only happen again to drone on is if you're doing that evaluation, if you're gathering that metrics from the outset, because that's how you make sure that your communications, the effort that you're putting, is having the desired impact and effect, and that in turn. Then helps make sure that you, if you're, you know, if you're near the, the table but not quite at the table all the time, you get that seat at the table because you've proved what communications can do and how it can impact Indeed. in a situation and turn a, in a crisis, take a crisis and make it, you know, not a success but get out of it uh, positively. A very key message to end our conversation, and I think that you know, if if again, if people take one thing away out of today, it's that embedding of that that evaluation, that measurement and evaluation, and understanding what are you trying to measure, what's of value, what's of interest, and I think Farouk makes a, a good point also about you can imagine that Grenfell Tower response, you know, like there's just, you know, flooding waves and oceans of information and then trying to mm. distill that into the insights that's going to help you to make better decisions about the stories that you tell, the channels that you use, the times, the again, uh, the insights to, to help you communicate more effectively. Well, Farouk, thanks so much for joining us on, on GovComs. Uh, I expected a lot and you delivered and you delivered. I'll give you that. So um, that's great. Um, 
and thank you for Pleasure giving up some here. of your time. No. Um, certainly welcome to Australia. I'm sure you'll get out of that thank flat you. at some point and be able to enjoy yeah. Sydney Harbour and uh, all the other joys and delights of, of uh, yeah. one of the great cities of the world. Uh, yeah, it's an unusual time for everyone. Absolutely. I'm kind of my kind of at the moment I'm kind of get, being teased by in a paper way by my new <laughs> colleagues and the the current thing that's kind of helping like I said earlier you know looking after people and looking after mental health is really important. So kind of the current in joke amongst the, the transport cons team is getting me to pronounce different Australian place names every day. <laughs> uh, and I'm not doing too well so I need to work on that. Oh, well, you'll have plenty of time. So very good. So thanks again. Um, And uh, really appreciate that. And to you, the audience, we really appreciate you coming back once again. Uh, If you have an interest in the Australian Public Service, we have launched a new podcast called Work With Purpose. And essentially what we're doing is speaking to the senior bureaucrats in Australia who are implementing the the government's... um, pandemic, COVID-19 pandemic response. So we're really getting in underneath the bonnet and trying to explain and understand to meet the people so you actually know who they are and you can understand who they are and what interests them. Um, But most importantly, then getting an understanding of the mechanics of how these decisions are being made. Because, ladies and gentlemen, uh, and I know most of you are involved in in government communications, but... uh, Government is going to play a role in our lives like it has never played before. And it doesn't matter whether you're in Australia, you're in the UK, you're in Washington, you're in uh, Vienna. It doesn't matter. It's going to become a far greater part of our lives. And it is important that we do understand how decisions are made, why decisions are made, how resources are allocated and those things. So that's what Work With Purpose is all about. Uh, We've got two episodes down so far. It's going gangbusters. So listen to it on your... um uh, you, you know, whichever, you know, uh, iTunes or uh, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever, Spotify, wherever you get your uh, podcast. So please have a listen to that. Uh, and we have some further news that we will bring you in the next couple of weeks about some ideas, having a chat with our friends, actually, at the UK government about doing something uh, globally around government communications uh, in the next few months as we seek to uh, learn the lessons uh, around communications from this Uh, uh, harrowing and uh, tragic pandemic that we are currently dealing with. So um, stay tuned for that information news as well. But for the moment, thank you so much for coming back. We'll be back at the same time in two weeks. But for the moment, it's bye for now. You've been listening to the GovComs podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate and subscribe to stay up to date with our latest episodes.